At the top of the psalm, we have the, uh, the superscription, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of, of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, instead of meditation, as found here in the New King James and other translations, uh, such as the New American Standard and the ESV, they have the, the word, uh, as you see on the overhead here, uh, Shagayon, uh, which... Uh, what does it mean? Well, uh, again, as found in the New American Standard, a Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. The word Shagayan uh, is a rare word with, with this exact form. It's being found only here. There's a couple, three places where it's maybe a related word. But this exact form is found only here. Most believe it's, it's a word that carries with it the idea of, of intense emotion or intense feeling. John MacArthur says it probably related to the idea of wondering, reeling, veering, or weaving. It more than likely conveys shifting emotions or movements of thought. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, as was this person named Cush here. Uh, most believe it is probable that Cush was one of Saul's loyal henchmen, if you will, uh, who was really out to, to kill David and was spewing slander to the effect that he was undermining David's credibility, perhaps with Saul himself. Uh, again, the New King James has uh, the superscription, meditation concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So there's, uh, there's an issue here. Some have said the title of the song could be Surviving Slander or the Song of the Slandered Saint. Seems that slander is a real issue here uh, with this Cush guy. Uh, the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, has got to be one of the most false things that has ever been said, right? Uh, words perhaps do more damage and inflict greater pain than almost anything else sometimes. Uh, note uh, the outline here. Uh, we have uh, the theme, prayer for deliverance. We have David expressing his concern, first five verses. He makes his case, uh, 6 through 16, and then at the end of the psalm, David's composure of praise. Well, let's pick it up, uh, Psalm 7. Verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces, while there is none to deliver. David begins with an affirmation of his trust in the Lord. And with a petition that God would save him from those who persecute or perhaps even more literally, pursue him. And again, we think it the context, many of the commentators think the context is probably when he is fleeing from Saul. And one of the reasons Saul hates him because he's a threat anyway, as far as him becoming the next king. But uh, it seems that there's people adding fuel to the fire in terms of slandering David uh, before Saul. Well, he specifically asked that God deliver him. He's very concerned that the enemy is very vicious, and violent and may tear him in pieces like a lion. You know, if a lion comes upon a sheep all by itself, that sheep is in desperate straits unless the shepherd comes to its rescue. And that's really kind of the position of David. Um, the Lord is David's shepherd. He needed him at this time to come to his aid, and he's crying out to him. He's once again singing that old song, Where Could I Go But to the Lord? Uh, David felt very vulnerable with nowhere to go except to the Lord. David Gazik says, This understanding gave David urgency in prayer. 
God sometimes allows difficult circumstances, so they will awaken this urgency in us. You know, that's, that's true. It's amazing how, serious, how a serious crisis kicks your prayer life into another gear. It's really true. Uh, we're all human, and it seems that sometimes we almost need a crisis to drive us closer to the Lord, and, and God's able to use crisis to that end. Charles Spurgeon said, It will be well for us to remember that this is a description of the danger to which the psalmist was exposed from slanderous tongues. Truly, this is not an overdrawn picture, for the wounds of a sword will heal, but the wounds of the tongue cut deeper than the flesh and are not soon cured. So he's saying, it's good. Remember the context here. You've got a slanderous situation that's really behind the writing of this psalm. Verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, there's been some major accusations against David. And he says, if I've done it, if I've done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. It seems that this Cush guy had slanderously accused David of these kinds of things. We're not given details. Again, many of the commentators think probably before Saul, uh, David is here not claiming sinless perfection. But he is saying that he is blameless in the matter about which he has been accused. He's innocent of the crime of which he has been slanderously charged. Perhaps in view is the idea that uh, David is saying he has not tried to do evil to King Saul. He has not stolen behind the scenes. He hasn't pilfered uh, what rightfully belongs to the king. He's done nothing of this sort. So sure is David of his innocence that he tells God that if he has done these things, then let the enemy overtake him and kill him and allow his life to end in dishonor. Note then he says, Selah, this uh, denotes a pause, kind of like stop and soak this in. David was emphatically claiming his innocence in the strongest of terms. David has done nothing wrong. He didn't go looking for trouble. What's being said about him was really a total hit job, total slander. And slander is speaking falsely about someone with the goal of destroying their reputation. That's what slander is. Uh, Slander is not just about communicating information. Uh, it's about uh, the intent to destroy. Slander has that, that goal. By the way, the name devil, uh, Greek diabolos, literally means slander. I mean, it's what he does. Uh, the devil is a liar and a murderer. Put that combination together. I mean, he's out to, to kill people, destroy people. And uh, those who know him really do the desires of, of their father, the devil, The devil specializes in character assassination. That's his specialty. In the New Testament, the the Greek word diabolos, as I say, is is, uh, literally devil. But it's sometimes translated uh, impersonally as false accuser, slander, or malicious gossip. Uh, This is the devil's work. Now, in describing last day's perilous times, which are days of apostasy, Paul, right in the middle of a long list of sins includes slanders, which is sometimes translated, as I say, malicious gossips. Uh, The word used there in 2 Timothy 3, verse 3, is the very same word 
that's used in John 670, where Christ says, one of you is a devil. So I want you to note this uh, as we look at these two references here. Uh, Jesus answered, did I not choose you 12? One of you is a devil. Of course, he's talking about Judas. And then in 2 Timothy 3, 3, uh, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, uh, devils. Uh, without self-control, it's in the middle here of all, all kinds of traits that define uh, the last days. Now, in calling Judas a devil, Jesus was not saying that he had somehow become an, uh, the actual devil incarnate. Rather, he was calling him a slanderer or a malicious gossip, which is characteristic of the devil. To be a slander is to be a Judas. It's to play the part of the devil. The devil is about destroying people. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's, that's his goal. And his tool choice is often slander. Uh, don't expect a fair treatment out here from, from the devil's folks. Uh, they're going to try to slander, undermine, do whatever they can to try to destroy our reputation, to, to take us out in any way they can. James says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and says it is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a hellish thing, is used by the devil, and he works through false accusers. That's what he does. He's called the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. And when he is cast down, all of heaven rejoices. Few things more hurtful than harmful slander, character assassination. And this is what David is talking about and really is the impetus behind this entire psalm. He felt the sting of it very severely. And so he says, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment. You have commanded, so the congregation of the peoples shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. David, knowing he was innocent, and knowing the righteous indignation of the Lord against slander, uh, calls on God to arise in anger and deal with his enemies in keeping with appropriate judgment as he has ordained. It's interesting. Uh, David doesn't say, well, I'm going to just take the bull by the horns here. No, he's asking God to do it. Uh, vengeance is God's. It belongs to him. Repayment is God's thing. Uh, so David looks to God. And then he asks in this process that the congregation of God's people surround him, in effect, in worship, and that God be lifted high up in their minds as, as sitting over them on high. Verse 8, The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, he says, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. So David asked God to intervene as judge. And when David says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, he really is asking God to vindicate him. Judge here is in, the, is in the sense of vindicate me. Again, he's not claiming sinlessness in every area of his life, but rather in regard to these accusations that have been slanderously leveled against him. Now, when you're innocent and uh, you speak out of integrity, it's a wonderful thing to know that God knows and that he will have the last word in this whole situation. In the end, he will vindicate integrity, and he will judge the sinner. But I think it is good to note this word of caution. Again, David Gazik says, uh, yet it is also a mistake to assume that the passions of God are always with us or support our opinion. 
(laughs) Many dangerous fanatics have been wrongly inspired by the mistaken assurance that God was for them when he was not. Uh, need to be careful with that. You know, God's on my side in this in this battle here, and He's against you. So I'm I'm looking to Him to wipe you out. Uh, well, want to be careful. Everyone you see wants to claim that God's on their side, but it's good to remember that vindication is only in keeping with true integrity, and this is where David was coming from, and he knew it. Verse nine: Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. And that's where David is putting himself. Uh, The prayer of the righteous is often that God will once and for all bring an end to the reign of evil. And that's really, uh, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, he says. Verse 9. We as God's people long for that day. And one day this prayer will be answered. We have promises in the Word of God. Psalm 34, 16, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Their time is limited. Psalm 37, 9, The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. And then he says, God tests the hearts and minds of all people. Ultimately, life is about the heart. And what's in the heart comes out in the life. Uh, We read in Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's a good question. Who can know it? Well, the Lord. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Verse 10 then is once again an affirmation of David's faith. He affirms God as his defense or his shield, meaning his protector. And then he affirms that God saves the upright in heart. David knew it's really all about having a right heart before God. And he's asking God to vindicate him on the basis of his integrity in this situation. And he expects God to work and answer in response to his prayer. We see in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In the New Testament, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Indeed, uh, those who walk with God uh, have power with God in terms of prayer. Uh, God works through that. Verse 11, God is a just God and God is angry with the wicked every day. What a statement. Wicked sinners who have no fear of God have lost sight of this reality. Uh, God is a just God. He can't just overlook sin Uh, He calls it like it is. And because he is a just judge, he is angry with the wicked every day. They're doing their thing, and he's a just God, a just judge. The Bible says unbelievers are at enmity with God. That's where they stand. They're enemies of God. They're not on good terms with God. John 3.36 says, The wrath of God abides on them. You know, that's a terrible place to be. Wrath of God just hovering over you, abides on a person. Again, David Gazik says, this is a commonly and, and dangerously rejected truth about God. Many anticipate that one day they will stand before a God of great love, great mercy, great warmth, and great generosity. They never imagine they will stand before a God who is perfectly just and who cannot ignore the crime of sin 
Well, that's a great point. Ray Comfort says we should use this verse, right? This is the message we must bring to a sinful world. God is angry with the wicked every day. We come, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, he, he, he's, he's never going to do anything. He's just a grandfatherly kind up here. He just, you know, it's all love all the time. Uh, yeah, he's angry with the wicked every day. His wrath abides on them. Every time they sin, they are storing up for themselves wrath that will be revealed on the day of judgment. That's what they're doing. They're collecting, they're collecting wrath that's going to be brought out against them. Unless they are convinced there is wrath to come, they will not flee to the one who can deliver them from that wrath. I mean, you don't need a Savior if everything's all right with you and God. The warning of verse 11 is that God is a just God who is angry with the wicked every day. And that leads into one of the great texts in the Bible on the necessity of repentance on the part of the wicked, as we see in verse 12. Angry with the wicked every day, verse 12, if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. God is angry with the wicked every day. But he gives space for them to repent. However, if they don't turn back, that is repent, God is ready to take them out in deadly judgment. The language here is metaphorical. But it makes the point. The words turn back are in other translations uh, translated as repent. Uh, this is the idea of repentance. It's a change of mind that results in a turning, turning from sin to God. The sinner has no idea how much danger he is in. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in 1741 preached a powerful sermon that is still talked about even today. And this sermon is famously titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I want to read just a short little excerpt from that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? All that we can possibly say about it gives a very feeble, faint representation of it. It's inexpressible and inconceivable for who knows the power of God's anger. How true. You know, when uh, bow hunters go out looking for an animal, uh, a prey to, to shoot, uh, when they see such an animal, what do they do? They pull their arrow back. Uh, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow. I mean, God's got them right in his sight. They pull back that bow, and at the right moment, they let, it, they let the arrow go. That's the picture here. God's got the sinner in his 
sights. Just a matter of letting it go. Thankfully, he is a patient God. A God of mercy and grace. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish. Desires all to come to repentance. Still, his bow is trained on the sinner. And the only thing that can change this situation is if the sinner turns in repentance. On December 7th, 1856, Charles Spurgeon, uh, known as the Prince of Preachers, preached a sermon titled, Turn or Burn, based on this text, Psalm 712. In introducing the somber theme of his sermon, Spurgeon pointed out how unpopular the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment was in his day. I dare say how much more so in our day. And he said, quote, I fear in too many places the doctrine of future punishment is rejected and laughed at. But the day will come when it will be known as a reality. Spurgeon went on to explain the nature of repentance and addresses why it is necessary that God should punish men if they will not repent. Uh, you know, again, famous sermon, another famous sermon, uh, Turn or Burn. Now, I've heard people really kind of mock, you know, the old preacher, Turn or Burn. That was a Turn or Burn type of sermon. <laughs> it's like, that's just not cool. You know, why would you ever preach such a thing? Well, I don't know why David dared to put it in the psalm here, but he did. Uh, this really is what David is saying, Turn or Die. God's, God's got his bow trained on you, and if you don't turn, you're in trouble. And he kind of continues on with this theme. Verse 13, he also prepares himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. These are instruments of death. People who refuse to get right with God are messing with death, eternal death. The word death means separation. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. And if we die in our sin, we'll be eternally separated from God in a place called the lake of fire. Eternal death. God has instruments of death trained on the sinner. At any moment, he could wound them mortally. For all eternity, the warning is strong. Verse 14, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. <laughs> it's got a real problem here with this. This is what the wicked's all about. Falsehood. This verse presents the source of sin as coming from within. The sinner conceives trouble in the heart, then gives birth to falsehood in the life. This corresponds with what Jesus said when he said, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Psalm 714 is descriptive of the slanderous sinner who has been seeking to destroy David. But in the end, this never goes well for the sinner. And David is reminding himself of, of the truth that we see in the Scriptures. Verse 15, He made a pit and dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return up on his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. There is an enduring principle in Scripture that says, Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. We see this same principle, for example, in the wisdom literature, Proverbs 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. It comes back on you. It boomerangs. Evil men plot how to destroy the righteous, but eventually it boomerangs. comes back on them in one way or another, at one time or another, certainly in eternity. 
Sooner or later, we reap what we sow. G. Campbell Morgan, God is righteous. The way of wickedness cannot prosper. It creates its own destruction. The pit digged is the grave of the man who digs it. That's a pretty good line. The pit digged is the grave of the man who digs it. A chief example of this in the Old Testament is wicked Haman, who prepared the gallows for the Jew Mordecai, only to be hung on it himself. Daniel's enemies conspired to have him thrown into the lion's den, only to them only have to have themselves be the main course, right? Came back on them. Well, focused on this reality. God, that God ensnares the wicked in their own traps, causes David to end this psalm on a very positive note. A composure of praise. Verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Moody Bible commentary, he is expressing gratitude and praise for whatever God chooses to do. No matter what it is, it will be consistent with God's perfect righteousness. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, David says. You know, we can give it over to God and leave it with him, knowing that he will do the just and the right thing at just the right time in regard to sinners who slander God's people. Indeed, David says, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Note he ends on a high note, pun intended, specifically the Lord Most High. I love that title for God, by the way. What a great reminder he is over all. He is the Most High. This title for God is first mentioned in Genesis 14, and then it's found frequently throughout the Old Testament. But most interesting to me, perhaps, when it comes to this title, Most High, is that it is mentioned 14 times in the book of Daniel, in a context where Daniel and his people, the Jews, were in captivity in Babylon. What an interesting context to make a point like this. You see, the pagans thought that taking the people captive meant that their God was greater than the gods of the people they took captive. So the Babylonians would assume, we took the Jews captive, our gods, the gods of Babylon, are greater than the God of the Jews. That's consistent in their thinking. Well, in that context, God makes the point that even though his people, the Jews, are in captivity, he is the most high. And he really made a major point of this with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the key leader in all the world. At that time, I mean, he's the head of gold. And God put him out to pasture for seven years until he got the point that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, is indeed the most high God. I mean, that was the issue. We read in Daniel chapter 4, 16 and 17, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. And sure enough, at the end of seven years, guess what? Nebuchadnezzar got it. 
It took a little while, but he got there. Daniel 4, 34, 35, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Yep, that's where he needed to look. And my understanding returned to me. I bless the Most High. <laughs> He's giving God, the, the God of the Jews is the Most High. It's not my gods, false gods. They don't do anything for me. I bless the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing He does according to His will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? David started Psalm 7 with great concern. But he ends with great confidence because his focus was now on the name of the Lord Most High. Whatever we're going through in terms of mistreatment or slander, remember, the Most High is the Most High. And he's in charge. And ultimately, he will sovereignly deal with all people. He is the judge of all. We can give it over to him, knowing that he will deal with it rightly as he is the Most High. And we can leave it there. And so we will. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.